0: Thank you for joining us for a message from the Christian Fellowship Church of Candu, North Dakota. Please visit our website for more information about our church at CanduCFC.com So I think we're in the, the second last message of our Deep and Wide series. I'm kind of trying to line things up so that we can start thinking about Christmas, believe it or not. And uh, I, I think we're getting pretty close. I, I think we'll have one more next week and then we should be done. So this week, with this whole deep and wide thing, we've talked about a lot of different concepts when it comes to making disciples. Uh, last week, we finished going through our open acronym, uh, which helps us to understand what it means to observe, pray, encourage, and nurture people in an intentional way so that we're building disciples for the kingdom of God. But all the way through this series, there's been a bunch of questions that I've felt would be kind of like a frequently asked questions kind of uh, concept for this series. And I, and I want to answer some of those today. I think there's four questions that I just want us to tackle because I wonder if I'm thinking about these things, Perhaps you're thinking about these things as well. You're asking the same questions that I am. So I'd like, to, I'd like to try to dive in and address some of these things together. And maybe if we're not asking these questions, it's going to spur us on to think and continue to dive deep and understand what the Lord may have for us as we are disciple makers for his kingdom. So the first question that I thought of is, as we're going through this whole idea of making disciples, is how long does it take to make disciples? And I think that's a fair question, because some of us, we like to know going in, okay, what am I signing up for? What am I really getting myself into? And I think to answer this question, we need to look at Jesus, right? He's the master disciple maker. And if we understand the amount of time that it took for him to make disciples, perhaps we will know how to answer this question a little bit better. So let's think this through, okay? Jesus spent three plus years with his disciples, And some people say it was closer to four years. Some say it's three and a half. We're just going to pick a round number for the sake of math this morning, okay? So Jesus spent about three years with his disciples. But how long is three years, really? Because we don't think in terms of years all the time. We break it down into smaller increments than that. We see evidence in the Bible that Jesus was with them nearly every waking moment. Nearly. So minus sleeping time, let's assume that Jesus spent... Just another round number, 15 hours a day with his disciples. So if we take 15 hours a day and we multiply that by 1,095 days, that's how many days there are in three years, that gives us a total of 16,425 hours. But there were 12 disciples. So let's take 16,425 and divide that by 12. That gives us 1,000. 368 hours and 45 minutes that Jesus gave to each individual disciple in their lifetime. Breaking that down even further, because it's hard to comprehend a number that big in terms of hours, let's think about this week by week, okay? So 1,365 hours and 45 minutes over the course of three years worth of weeks equals eight hours and 45 minutes per week, that Jesus had with each individual disciple, eight hours and 45 minutes. Now, I don't think personally that we can make disciples faster than Jesus did. The people in my life that I would say I'm actively discipling, I spend an hour, an average of about an hour and a half with each week. So at an hour and a half a week, it would take me about 17 and a half years to equal the amount of time that Jesus invested in each of his disciples. So we can see that making disciples is certainly something that is going to take time. But let's not get discouraged or overwhelmed here. I'm not saying that we have to spend 17 and a half years with each person at minimum in order to disciple them appropriately. All I want us to understand is discipleship is not a quick thing. It's not something that happens over the course of a weekend. It's something that happens over the course of a longer period of time than we might realize. Discipleship means that we walk with someone for a prolonged period of time through the ups and downs and circumstances and experiences of their life, because as we walk with them in those areas, we can then speak to them in those areas of their life. That's what Jesus did, and I want to disciple people like Jesus discipled people. Pastor Eugene Peterson calls discipling someone a long obedience in the same direction. I like that. I think that makes a lot of sense to me. So knowing the time commitment involved in making disciples, I think it's actually a good time to consider that discipleship starts at home. In this series, we've talked about what it looks like to disciple people inside the church. We've looked at it from kind of an evangelistic perspective and learning to disciple people outside the church. But the area where many of us have abundant opportunities to be disciple makers is right in our own home. So parents, listen to this verse, okay? Psalm 127 verse 3 says, Children are a gift from the Lord. So think about what a gift is, okay? Okay. Uh, This uh, it's something that someone has had in their possession, something that they own or have purchased, and then they give it to us out of their own free will. So our children were in God's possession and he chose to give them to us. Really, our kids are borrowed to us by God. If we think about it, he is entrusting them to us for a short while until they are out from under our care. When we understand our children this way, it makes us understand the urgency to disciple them towards Jesus and to do it clearly, quickly, while they're young. Proverbs 22, verse 6, a classic verse, says, Start children off in the way they should go, and even when they are old, they will not turn from it. As disciple-making parents, we need to point our children towards a life lived for Jesus. If we teach them that and we model that for them, if we are consistent in the examples of Christ-like living that we show them, we can have much hope that our kids will stick to that path for themselves when they are living as adults. Everything that we've talked about in this series so far can be applied to how parents disciple their kids. Just briefly, there's two specific pieces in discipleship as parents that I'd like to encourage you with this morning. Number one is this, this concept, consistency in discipling our kids is key. Consistency is key. And this idea is evident when we look at a passage from Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 to 9. Listen, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone, and you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your strength, and you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I am giving you today. Repeat them again and again to your children. Talk about them when you are at home and when you are on the road, when you are going to bed and when you are getting up. Tie them to your hands and wear them on your forehead as reminders. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So, to paraphrase this passage, parents, it says this. Point your kids to Jesus and how Jesus teaches us to live in everything we do and everywhere we go. Everything. That's really what it's saying here. When I I think about my role as a parent, our role, my wife and I, as parents to our kids, this is the way I look at church, okay? The church and Sunday school aren't raising my kids for Jesus. I am. That is my job. And my church and my Sunday school department supplement the teaching that I can offer to my kids. I love it that, that parents bring their kids to Sunday school knowing or hoping that their kids are going to learn something about Jesus here. But if I'm honest... I look back at my childhood, probably 5 or 10% of the things that I learned came from Sunday school, and 90% closer to that, that came from my parents. Because who do I spend the most time with during the week? Not my Sunday school teacher, not my pastor, but I'm with my family. I'm at my home. I'm with my parents. They are the ones who raised me and taught me to know and to love Jesus. So whether it's mealtime or homework time, Chores, whether you're planning your family vacation, whether you're watching TV together, the schedules you keep, the purchases you make, the commitments that you make or break, every single one of these can and will teach your kids or communicate to your kids if Jesus is the one who is directing your life. And in all of those moments in our lives, we can find ways to to teach our kids about what we're doing and how it's meant to honor God. We teach them how to live for Him and not for themselves through the life that we live. Life is a great classroom, and you and I, mom and dad, we are the teachers. The second principle uh, when it comes to being a parent who is discipling their children is the caught and taught, or versus taught principle. Our kids learn so much or just as much, sorry, if not more, from watching us than they do from listening to us. If we say one thing, but then we do the opposite, which one do you think our kids is going to listen to? (laughs) I know from experience they don't always listen to what I say, but they always see what I do. We can talk about the importance of worshiping Jesus as much as we want, but if going to church is up for debate every Saturday night, then what do we teach our kids? They don't hear what we say in that moment. They hear what we do. And they, and they think, oh, so worshiping Jesus, even though my mom and dad talk about it, it's clearly not that important because we're not going to church again. We're not spending time in the Bible again, right? Consistency is key. And the cot principle, what we model for them, is so important If we talk about the importance of praying or reading our Bibles, obeying God, learning to be like Him, but our kids can't see us doing these things, what we've said loses basically all of its power. For me, I caught so much from my parents in addition to what they taught me. Their lifestyle of devotion to God was what propelled me forward in my faith the most. I could see what it meant to be a Christian, to be a disciple of Jesus. Perhaps during this series, we may have also wondered this question. This is a bit of a strange question, you may think, when we put it up here initially, because the answer, we may say, is obvious. But once again, saying is one thing, doing is another. Another question I think is is good to ask is, is making disciples worth it? Is it truly worth it, right? Because we've talked already about the time commitment involved in this. We've talked about the lifestyle of what it means to be a disciple maker and not just someone who bears the name of Christ and we call ourselves a Christian. Is it really (laughs) worth it investing our time and our energy into discipling other people and helping them to learn to know and love and being devoted to Jesus? Because, man, the cost is great. So is it worth it? For me, just from my own experience, from my own life, I believe the answer is a resounding Yes. And it's, it's a yes for me for a few reasons. I want to share those with you today from three passages, okay? In 2 Corinthians 3, verse 2 and 3, it says this. Your lives are a letter written in our hearts. Everyone can read it and recognize our good work among you. Clearly, you are a letter from Christ showing the result of our ministry among you. Now, here's a little bit of context to this passage. Paul is talking about the people of Corinth that he has given years of time and energy to. Because he has been faithful to disciple them towards Jesus, they are now a letter. So that's figurative. They're not really a letter, but they're, they're acting like a letter would. They're a letter or evidence of what happens when someone gets discipled towards Jesus. That's why Paul says you are a letter from Christ because this means that their lives are communicating that Jesus has changed them from the inside out. That's beautiful, right? So here's a question. How did Jesus do this good work in the Corinthians? Well, Paul says that the Corinthians are a result of our ministry. Okay. So Paul and his companions have worked hard in Corinth. They've worked hard amongst the Christians there discipling them towards Jesus. And this shows us that as we disciple people, as we engage in what God has called us to do, Jesus does good work in them, and we are joyful about the results. This whole passage is Paul gushing with joy, saying, look at what has happened in your lives. You've changed. It's like you're a letter written proclaiming that Jesus is the Lord of your life. And I'm so glad that the effort that I put into teaching you about Jesus has not been wasted, but you are following through. And everything that Jesus wants to do in you is happening right before our eyes. I think that's so beautiful to recognize that, right? Talking to a friend of mine named Brett this week, He told me about a young man named Jimmy that he's kind of taken under his wing these past couple of years. Brett has spent time with Jimmy. He's ministered to him, modeling a life committed to Jesus for him. And already in just two years, he can see significant changes in Jimmy's heart, in his mind, in his disposition. Brett sees a letter written by Jimmy In Jimmy's heart, this letter has been written as a result of Brett's willingness to disciple Jimmy and commit time and energy to his spiritual growth. Brett has great joy and great satisfaction as he relays this to me on the phone this last week. And we can have this too. It takes time, it takes energy, but one of the greatest reasons why it's worth making disciples is because it actually fills our lives with a joy that we can't get if we don't engage in this work that Jesus has called us to do. Adding to this idea, 2 Timothy 2.15 says, work hard so that you can present yourselves to God and receive his approval. Be a good worker, one who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly explains the word of truth. So three quick phrases from this passage that caught my eye. Work hard, be a good worker, someone who correctly explains the word of truth. So from this verse, we see that God is looking for people who don't just believe and receive for themselves, but people who are also going to speak the truth about him and his kingdom to others. This verse tells us that we're this verse also tells us that we're working for God's approval. We see what God's looking for, and we see what we're working towards. Friends, God is calling you and me to be workers for him, to explain the truth about him to other people. If we do that, what he's asking us to do, we have no reason to be ashamed when we stand before him. God offers his approval to those who make disciples. And this is a marvelous thing. You know, it's funny, I'm going to be 40 in january and i still think about if my parents are proud of me how many of you like raise your hands i don't care how old you are how many of you care if your parents are proud of you or not okay so i know some of you are older than me okay i know that and your hands have gone up so truly like there's this there's this instinctual thing in us where we want mom and dad to be proud of us and that's a good thing Because if you carry that over to your heavenly father and you think about how one day he's going to come back and he's going to stand before us and he's going to say, children, come. I'm so excited to see you and I'm going to want to be there with you, rubbing shoulders saying, Jesus, Jesus, look at what we did. We're so excited that we got to live for you. And he's going to say, I know, I know you did. Thank you so much. I think that Jesus is so much more like our daddy than he is like this stoic deity that we make him out to be i think he's genuinely excited when we're excited to show him the things that we're doing for him i want you to remember that okay because we said that there's joy and from this joy we also get this approval and that's a fantastic thing one last verse on this topic of is it worth it to make disciples that i think is important it comes from revelation 22 verse 12 jesus says look I am coming soon. My reward is with me and I will give to each person according to what they have done. Not what they believed. Did you see that? According to what they have done. So being disciple makers, even though it is a big job for sure, is so worth it because how we engage in this work determines if we get God's reward. Now this reward, just take a deep breath. This reward isn't salvation. Okay, because Ephesians two, verse eight and nine says that salvation is a gift, not a reward for the good things that we have done. But the reward talked about here in this verse is based on what we do with our salvation. Do we keep this good news about Jesus to ourselves or do we share it freely with others by discipling them, by teaching them all the things that we've learned and helping them to walk with Jesus like we do? From these three passages, we see that making disciples, in my opinion, is totally worth it. It brings us joy. We receive approval from the one who we want approval from, and we earn a reward on top of that. If a person doesn't love Jesus, these things won't matter to them. Have you ever thought about that? But because we are a church that absolutely loves Jesus, of course these things matter to us. We want to experience joy with the people that we love. We want the approval of the people that we love. And if they say they have a reward for us, of course, because we love them, we want to do whatever they're asking of us so that we will earn that reward. That's what happens when you love someone. Jesus loves us. We love Him. So this is how we live. One thing I'm even more sure about now than that we're almost deep and wide series is that being a disciple maker is really a way of life like it's it's a full-on lifestyle it's not something that we engage in for one weekend or for a couple of months and then we kind of check that box and say okay i think we're done being disciple makers now let's move on i think this is something that we just allow to envelop our whole lives and we engage in this from now until jesus calls us home are we engaged in this, way, in, this, in this way of life and begin to make disciples? I hope so. Because as we do this, as we begin to disciple others, wherever we meet them, we may find ourselves asking, okay, now that I'm in, now that we're starting the ball rolling, discipling people, when is someone done being discipled? Have you ever wondered that? Because like, I, I get it. We have schedules. We have other things we also want to do in life. And so we may wonder, well, discipling sounds scary because it sounds like I have to give up everything and then I'm just stuck with this person, whether they're in or not for the rest of our lives. No, I don't think it's that way or not. I think the Bible gives us some wonderful clues to help us to understand once we've helped someone be discipled to a place where they've been able to now stand on their own two feet. So just a couple of thoughts on this. On one hand, when a person is able to feed themselves spiritually, that would indicate that they have been significantly discipled, right? Some people, they come to us and we begin to walk with them and they don't even know that there's a Bible that has an Old and a New Testament. They don't even know who Jesus is. Oh, Jesus is God's son? I thought Jesus was God. What does that mean? And they ask these questions, right? We started a place like that and then all of a sudden we can get them to a place where they can say, I know who Jesus is. He's the son of God who died for my sins, and I've believed in him. He's forgiven me and given me assurance of salvation so that I can live for him now, for his glory here on earth, and I am positive and confident that one day I will be with him in heaven. So that's a wonderful transition when you get from I don't know to I know for sure, right? So it's clearly there's some discipleship that has happened to that point. Perhaps they're even actively discipling others and teaching them the things that you taught them, which would be beautiful, right? That would be a pretty mature disciple. Would you agree? Okay. On the other hand, can we learn more and continue to grow in spiritual maturity even once we get to a point like I just described? Yes, absolutely. Those are still actually the basics of faith. But there's so much more meat on the bone that God has for us. So a couple of verses that speak to this idea are, well, first of all, Hebrews 4.15. But solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. So the spiritually mature are those who have been trained. Right? They've, they haven't just stayed the same, but they've been trained. They've been grown so that they will be more mature. They have consistently demonstrated and practiced knowing what is right and wrong in God's eyes and not just their own. They understand these things and they choose to live according to what is right in God's sight. This is a mature follower of Jesus. But compare this idea... of of someone who is on solid food, they're a mature believer, compare this idea with what it says in Ephesians 3, verse 17 to 19. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. So here's the big question from this passage. What does filled to the measure of all the fullness of God mean? Is it perfection? Like, is this like you never sin again? I don't know. Is it like an unshakable union with God where your faith is so solid, like there's no way you'd ever turn back? Is it a depth of relationship with Jesus that Jesus himself had with the Father? Maybe, maybe it's these things. This week I thought about this idea of a mature believer and about the idea of being filled to the measure of the fullness of God. To me, they're similar, but still they are different. These ideas seem to work together though. They work in harmony with each other. So reading these things, it made me think that a mature person is someone who desires to be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. So that first passage explains where you should be going in the second. But then again, someone who desires this, they desire to be filled to the fullness of God, is someone who is gaining even more maturity. So these ideas, I think they really work together. The more mature we are, the more we're going to desire to be filled by Jesus. And and we're going to start to experience more of the fullness. And as we experience more, The fullness of Jesus in our lives, the Holy Spirit taking over and guiding us, we're going to understand, oh, I I thought I was mature here, but ooh, really, I've gained a lot more maturity than I even thought I could. And these ideas, they just kind of work together like a stepladder. In my life, I've noticed that the more mature in Jesus I become, the more fully I desire to have him in my life. And the more fully I desire to have him in my life, the more mature I still desire to become. I think it's actually a marvelous thing when our desires start to take over like this and we're never content, not like we're dissatisfied, but we're never just content to stay where we are. We've experienced so much goodness of Jesus that we... Say, oh Lord, like if this is where you're willing to have me at 39 years old, I can't wait for me to be 49 years old. What do you have in store for me in the next decade of my life? Would you take me deeper, Jesus? Would you show me what it means to walk with you in just the perfect harmony of your will? I don't desire anything in my life to be according to what I want. I actually just want what you want. Man, in my office this week, I just had this marvelous experience where Uh, I was thinking about some of these things from this message and about this whole idea of of maturity, but then growing in desire and desire creating more maturity and more fullness and things like that. And I, I look back over just the last short while in my life, and I'm just so satisfied. Not not content to just stay where I am, but I'm so satisfied with everything that Jesus has done. It has given me so much joy. I think about the opportunities that God gives me in my life, in this community and with my family and here at this church. And I love how when he calls me to step out in faith, I've I've tried my best and I'm nervous. Yet at the same time, I know that this is what he's calling me to do. So I trust God and, and he bears fruit and brings these wonderful results. And I just like, I'm I'm blown away and I say, Lord, like if this is what my life is supposed to be like, I don't care about any of the dreams or desires that I've had. Lately, I've had this whole thing where Karen and I are planning while I'm planning for our retirement, that we're going to live on a bus and we're going to just travel around and tell people about Jesus. We're going to convert this school bus into like a mobile home. Why are you laughing? This is a brilliant idea. And I've been thinking, like, this would just be fantastic. And I've honestly, in my heart, I get so excited about things like this. And this is a big thing. You might laugh, but this this week, I laid it down. I said, Jesus, if I never get to live on a bus, I'm okay with that, as long as I can serve your will wherever you have me. And I love it. Because even the silly things, right? Even the things that are just like a goofy dream, maybe for you, but not for me. If we are willing to lay these things down, the things that we hold so close to our heart, because we'd rather do what Jesus wants, isn't that like, that's where we want to be? And I'm just so thankful even now to say, Jesus, you've done that in me. I'm not wise enough on my own to pick your path. That's truly the work of your Holy Spirit in me. I just want what you want, right? I think this was part of the message. Yeah. So, yeah, the question that we're trying to answer is, how do we know when someone's done being discipled? The goal is that we keep teaching the people that we're discipling so that we build them up to be as mature as they allow us to be. And I want to take someone as far as I can take them and as far as they're willing to go. I'll be the first one to say that in this life on earth, I don't think any of us are going to be what we could say is fully mature. But there is a point in the maturing process where we become someone who is not simply being fed by what someone else is sharing with us, but we're going to grow stable and strong to the point where we can feed ourselves. We can dive into God's Word and and receive from Him, and we can show someone else how to do the same thing. That's what we're striving for as disciple-makers to build people up so that they don't have to stand with, uh, with us on our faith, but they can stand on their own faith. This idea is reflected, finally, in, in 2 Timothy 2, verse 2, where it says, "...you have heard me teach many things that have been confirmed by many reliable witnesses. Now teach these truths to other trustworthy people who will be able to pass them on to others." There are four interesting layers to this verse, okay? So when it says you, right at the beginning, you is Timothy, because that's who this letter is being written to. The person writing it, who is me, that's Paul. So you is Timothy, me is Paul. Timothy has been taught about Jesus by Paul. Now Paul is teaching Timothy to teach other trustworthy people. Notice that the word people is plural about Jesus. So Paul teaches Timothy... Timothy teaches trustworthy people, and then those trustworthy people are supposed to then take everything that he teaches to other people. Once again, plural. So this reveals, this verse reveals that the goal of discipleship is multiplication. It's not like I pass this on to one person, and that one person passes it on to something else. It's not a game of telephone. What we're doing here is we're trying to blow this thing up. I want to tell as many people about Jesus as I can in my lifetime. I want to disciple as many people as I can to maturity in Christ. Because I don't want the line to be singular through my life. I want Jesus to look at me and just see like a timeline that just goes boom. And he sees all the people that I had the willingness to to teach about him. And perhaps when someone understands this concept of multiplication, perhaps then... That's when they've been discipled sufficiently where we can say, you are off and running. Take everything that I've taught you and just go, go, go. Last question. Is disciple making really possible for me in my schedule? You know, we are busy people. One of the, one of the funny things is that Karen and I thought when we moved to Can Do from Winnipeg, we thought, oh man, life is going to slow down. Like small town living, this is going to be marvelous We're going to like sit in rocking chairs on our porch. And no, I'm just kidding. We didn't think that at all. But like, we just honestly thought that things would be so much slower, but we quickly realized, oh no, people are people and we make ourselves busy. That's just what we do. I believe with all my heart that anyone who wants to be a disciple maker can and will find time to make disciples. Let me tell you about a friend of mine named Dan Hungerford. Dan is 32 years old. He's married to his wife, Olivia, and they have two children, ages five and three. Dan works 40 plus hours a week, like most of us. And his wife, Olivia, works 24 to 32 hours a week. Dan is, uh, he works on his family's kiwi orchard in Rangiuru I think I'm pronouncing that name correct, New Zealand. He's a machinery operator who mows and sprays their orchards. His wife works in an emergency room in a hospital in a nearby city. So clearly between Dan and his wife Olivia, they are busy, right? They have a lot of stuff to do with their work. Dan's family orchard has hired many East Indians to come and work for them because just like us, we we have people coming from other countries to help on farms around here. In New Zealand, they have people coming from other countries to help there as well. So apart from working shoulder to shoulder with these men, Dan talks to them and gets to know them and asks them questions, a thing that we've talked about the value of doing, learning to ask questions, right? He's taking his time by just asking these men questions about their life. He's slowly learning to gain a perspective on their worldview, what their life is like, finding out how they do life, what they love, and he's asking them questions about their faith. By doing this, Dan is building relationship and trust with these guys. Another principle that we've talked about over time. Dan has noticed that these men have eventually started to ask him questions about his faith in Jesus. They call Dan the jolly man because he's kind of short. He's kind of round and he's always smiling. They keep saying to Dan that they've never met someone as happy all the time as Dan is. And then Dan gets to tell them where his happiness comes from his relationship with Jesus. Once a week, Dan and Olivia meet with a group of young adults that they have formed from their church for two hours in the evening. Then they try to do something. During this group time, they try to do something once a month that's just pure fun. So Dan told me that this last week they all went possum hunting, which clearly is a New Zealand thing to do. They also try to make time to serve together every so often because they want to teach these young ones that life isn't about living for yourself, but life is meant to be, to, to be given away for other people. But then their normal regular meetings, the meetings that they have the most, are where they get together and their time is broken up as follows. For 30 minutes, they play a game and they eat snacks together. They just enjoy each other's company. For 15 to 20 minutes, they spend time teaching. For 20 to 30 minutes, each person is interacting with the Bible. They're writing down thoughts, and then they ask God questions of one another that they try to answer together. And then for 20 to 30 minutes, they break into separate guys and girls groups to share about the highs and lows of their week. They share a goal for the week ahead, and they pray for each other. During the week, Dan also is committed to connecting with each of the guys in his group individually. He'll try to meet with them in person. If that's not possible, he calls them and he talks about them talks about life with them on the phone. What I love about Dan is how normal his life is. It's so normal. It's even what we might call average. He's married with kids and a job. He has bills. He has a schedule to keep. Dan is exactly like you and me. He's no different than we are. But even with everything that Dan has going on in his life, we can still clearly see that he makes time to build relationships and trust and share Jesus with people and help them to grow in their faith. Dan makes time to be a disciple maker. And I believe that if Dan can do it, so can we. That's my great encouragement to you today. Sometimes we disqualify ourselves saying, I don't have time. Yes, you do. You just have to make time. We've answered several questions today about living this deep and wide disciple-making life that Jesus has called us to. And we're going to close today by um, taking the Lord's Supper, communion together. I was th- as I was thinking about communion this week, the thought kept coming to me that Christ laid down his life for me. That's what we're remembering, right? That's the reason why we take communion, so that we will remember how Jesus was a willing sacrifice to take away our sins. He gave his life, not just the blood and his body, but every moment of his life was actually lived for, the, for honoring God and the betterment of the disciples that he was leading, right? And it made me think, like, we remember a sacrifice that Jesus made. And Romans 12:1 tells us to be a living sacrifice. If you need uh, some communion supplies, by the way, Brent has some. He'd be glad to bring it to you if you put up your hand. And I, I just think about the, the perfect sacrifice that Jesus was for us. And I want to live like a sacrifice just because of what he did for me. I want to give away my life as much as I can so that God's kingdom is going to be grown through how I live. I want people to be discipled because of how I choose to spend my time. I want the kingdom of God to grow and build and expand because my life is not my own. And I'm willing to give it to God, sacrificing it to Him for His glory. So as we take communion today and we remember the sacrifice of Jesus my encouragement to you would be to live a sacrifice for Jesus.